All right, so I want to start us out, because it's kind of tricky to get this to play. I'm going to start with my little intro Seinfeld clip. I hate Keith Hernandez. Hate him. I despise him. <laughs> why? I'll tell you why. No, let me tell it. No, you can't tell you it. You always tell it. All right, tell it. I let it, it, it. You just tell it. <laughs> June 14th. 1987, Mets, Phillies, were enjoying a beautiful afternoon in the right field stands when a crucial Hernandez error opens the door to a five-run Phillies ninth, cost the Mets the game. Our day was ruined. <laughs> there was a lot of people, you know, they're waiting by the players' parking lot. Now, we're coming down the ramp. Newman was in front of me. Hernandez was coming toward us. As he passes us, Newman turns and says, Nice game, pretty boy. <laughs> Hernandez continued past us up the ramp. Then, a second later, something happened that changed us in a very deep and profound way from that day forward. It wasn't. He spit on us. And I screamed out, I'm it! Then I turned and the spit ricocheted off him and it hit me. Wow, what a story. Yeah. Unfortunately, the immutable laws of physics contradict the whole premise of your account. Allow me to reconstruct this, if I may, for Miss Bennis, as I've heard this story a number of times. Newman, Kramer, if you'll indulge me. According to your story, Hernandez passes you and starts walking up the ramp. Mm -hmm. Then you say you were struck on the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn, and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. All right, so I, um, that was back when JFK movie was out and they did a whole bit on, um, on the second shooter and there's a second spitter and then it ends up being a, it was not, it was not uh, Keith Hernandez who spit, it was Roger McDowell in the, in the bushes and then they, they go, oh yeah, maybe that's because uh, because uh, we were making fun of him the entire game while he was in the bullpen. And so, um, the reason I use this one is because sometimes, one, I love that clip. It always makes me laugh because the whole, like, and it pauses in midair, mind you, right? And then, um, and then uh, it, how some things can cloud our vision or clouds our cloud our ability to see the truth. Um, I'm going to focus on some of those things that kind of get in the way of us seeing how God works or, or, or seeing what he may be teaching us. This is, oh, yeah, so this is our topic. I'm going to be looking at Acts 24. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here. Open our eyes to your truth and to your word um, and uh, allow us to hear from you today, Lord. Um, so, in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. So, um, where we left off is Paul had been taken to Caesarea uh, by the Roman soldiers. 
And so um, there was a plot, they found out about it, and they rushed him up to Caesarea to meet with Governor Felix. And where we pick up in, in chapter 24 is he's um, before Felix, and then um, Ananias, the high priest, some elders, and then there was uh, Tortullus, who was a lawyer, expert in the law, had gone to Caesarea, had, had rushed up there. They said they got there in five days because um, they, they wanted Paul to be punished. And so we pick up where they, they start their account or what their, their explanation for why uh, Governor Felix needs to do something. He says, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining yourself, you will, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And so since some of the other Jews there joined in and asserting these things were true, and then Governor Felix motions with his hand, and then we get Paul's um, response. He says, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I, will, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city, and, we cannot, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor, to present offerings um, I was ceremonial clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I, w when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was acquainted, it says that he was acquainted with the way he adjourned the proceedings, said when uh, the commander comes, we'll, we'll talk further. However, he had a wife who was a Jew, and he, under, he knew about Christianity. It says he knew about the way, and so he would listen to Paul. He brought him in and let Paul talk to him about Jesus until, until Paul gets to the tougher things. It says there that Paul, as Paul discussed on righteousness, self-control, and, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find a convenient, I will send for you. And so then he kind of left it, and then he was kind of hoping for a bribe, and then two years go by, and he moves on. And so that's, that's where, that's kind of all of chapter 24. In this chapter, we see a couple of different types of people. Um, the key is to ask yourself, who am I in the passage? Um, I know that many will say, well, I'm Paul. I'm a follower of Christ. However, my hope is that some of you will realize that you are sometimes the other people in this passage. And there are three types of individuals that I, I kind of see. Uh, and I'm actually going to spend most of my time with the first one, the deniers, 
These are names I came up with, so they're not in the passage. But one of the deniers, the two by four to the head, and the refuser. So I'll cover what those mean in a second here. Um, so let's deal with the deniers. And who are they? They are, um, uh, they are, oh, actually, sorry. Those are the three. Um, who are the deniers? The deniers are Ananias, uh, Elders, and Tortullus. They refuse to believe that uh, the truth, and they actually made things up. They said things that weren't true. You know, when he was raising and causing a riot, partly because they, I think that they thought that's what Felix would, would kind of help them with their case with Felix, because usually most often the Romans were just concerned with maintaining order. So if they can point out somebody who was, you know, stirring things up, the Romans would act. And they obviously went very quick. I'm imagining... You know, you, it's, at that time, you couldn't jump in a car and drive up there for the day. They got up there in five days. I'm presuming that's kind of quick. So they were on a mission to take out Paul. Now, I was thinking about this. I said, you know, I think Paul probably spent, obviously, a considerable time talking to people about, you know, why he believed Jesus is the Messiah and talking from scriptures. Uh, <clears throat> however, a lot of people refused to see the truth. And so I started to think that, you know, why is that? Why do people, why would people get so upset or, or are there things that get in the way that prevent us from seeing the truth um, and discerning how God acts and how God is acting? And so I kind of, kind of went beyond the passage and I thought through some, some things that I kind of observed or I kind of observed through the Bible or life that can sometimes get in the way of us really seeing the truth of something. And so the first one is ego. Sometimes our ego can get the better of us. Um, back when I was in uh, community college, I had a Spanish teacher I absolutely loved, and he told us this story about when he went traveling with his family. So he comes from, a, I think he was third generation, uh, Spanish-speaking family. I'm not sure what country they're originally from. And uh, so when he went to school, he majored in, in Spanish, and so they went on this trip, and because he was the one, the expert in Spanish, he spoke for him and the rest of the family. At some point, dad didn't like this. I can't, you know, I'm the dad. I should be kind of taking control of things. I shouldn't have to rely on my son. And he, as he described, he said his dad had what you would call, he described as a kitchen Spanish. It's what his mother spoke to him around the kitchen, which anybody that knows languages usually is quite, quite, probably different from what they speak in, in the various countries. And so dad decides one day at a restaurant that he's going to order the, order the food. He says, I'm going to order. Okay. So he decides to order beer for everyone. But there becomes a confusion, and instead of ordering a beer for everyone, he orders all the beers for everyone. And to top it off, it wouldn't have been so bad if they could clear it off, is they opened all of them before they brought them to the table, right? So why is that? Dad has an ego. He can't deal with that. Well, we see that in the Bible, uh, we see that in Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about the prophet is never, you know, it's only in his hometown that a prophet is without honor. In that passage, you see people going, you know, who is this guy? You know, where did he get this wisdom and this miraculous power? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and his brothers Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas? Aren't they here with us? Where did he, where did this man get all these things, and they took offense at him. And so what I thought is, is yeah, these people are sitting around thinking, Jesus, you're, you're just a carpenter. Why don't you just go back there to your, your shop and finish that, that chair I, I wanted you to work on, right? 
He's in a place that they don't see him as the person he is. And why? Because there's ego. We don't, you know, you're that guy over there. You're not somebody else. Sometimes our ego gets in the way. Um, another one is allegiance. You're aligned with a particular group or organization or party, and you can't fathom going against them. We actually saw this in the previous chapter in Acts 23, right, where Paul goes, you know, it's because I believe in the resurrection from the dead that I'm, be, I'm here on trial. And then what happens? There's this big fight between the two groups. And I, I think he gets people now on his side that normally weren't on his side. He's like, well, no, that's our guy because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And they're not even thinking about what the issues are. They're just going with their allegiance. Um, and, you know, this can be hard, too, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, if those have followed uh, Ravi Zacharias and his situation, I was always a huge fan of his ministry, but then some things have come out that are less than flattering. And I remember the feeling inside of me, like, you know, I, I really, you don't want to hear that because, you know, this couldn't happen to this person, which I, I, the funny thing is, intellectually, I know that. I've, I've, I've lived long enough to not assume anything of anybody. You know, people say, well, I would have never imagined that they would do it. And I go, well, those are you, that, that's the way life is. But when it's personal, it's harder. It's harder to move beyond that. Another one is like your likes or dislikes. Um, and I, I, kind of a funny one, you know, coming from California, people are, tend to be more environmentally focused. Uh, and most of the time, I always thought that most of the people that were kind of in the environmental movement were kind of crazy. You know, they were usually tree-hugging hippies, right? Um, you know, and I just saw a lot of weirdness, and I remember sitting, listening to this woman talk about how she lived in a tree for a long time and became one with the tree and the whole thing. However, I was challenged on that when I kind of think of the concept of stewardship and how God has given us things and taught us to be good stewards of what we have. I think of... Uh, Genesis, you know, where, with Adam, the Lord, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. God wants us to take care of things. So I was always challenged by that. So I've become a fan of recycling. I always feel like, you know, we shouldn't be wasteful. We should reuse. We should recycle. I can get a little intense about it. I even got accused, well, you're from California. You, you know, that's the way you are. And I thought, well, no, it's not really. Actually, I think it is a biblical thing. We should not be wasteful. Now, this isn't, you know, I also want to say is that this isn't an indictment against, you know, or, or to, to take a stand on climate change or anything like that or to, you know, rail against the oil companies. It's more like, look, I, this is where I read scripture and I'm trying not to allow how I feel about something to cloud how I, how I interpret scripture. That's really the only point here. So what's another one? It's emotions. Sometimes emotions get in the way. I come from the, the Pentecostal world and I, you know, I, I've dealt a lot with, you know, God told me this or God said this to me, you know. It, it wasn't uncommon to have somebody go to someone else and go, I think God wants me to marry you. Um, and, I, and I've had conversations with people about that. Well, and one, one particular person said that to me. Somebody came up to her and said, I think God wants us to marry. And they got engaged and actually they ended up not marrying, of course. And I'm always thinking, well, I thought God told you to marry and and it's not that I don't think that God would, wouldn't do that. It's just that I, I have, I, 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 over time, I've become a little bit more cautious about that kind of conversation. I, I've learned that uh, people sometimes have a really bad time, under, uh, you know, have a very difficult time or do a terrible time, actually, always interpreting how God is moving in their life. 
Um, in fact, I probably differ from some, some people in our church that I, I, I still feel like the gifts are active, but I'm also the reverse side of it. I tend to be so much more critical of people that will say things. Well, I really saw God working. And my first response is, well, how do you know? What makes you think that, that God is guiding you that way? And even to tell people, I'm not sure God is guiding you that way. And what I have found is that people so desperately want to see God working, I think sometimes they start to see God working where God isn't necessarily working. Maybe somebody really wants to be married, and so they really, well, I think God wants to marry this person. Sometimes you have to tell them, I'm not sure. You You have to guide them through that emotional aspect. And the Bible teaches us to be discerning, to test the spirits. There are numerous passages about Discernment, in, particularly in Proverbs. Here's one. Um, Proverbs, my son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. Um, we also see the story of Solomon. He was greatly, you know, God, he in, in 1 Kings 3, you know, when Solomon asked for a discerning heart, God is overjoyed and says, because you didn't ask for long life or, or death of your enemies or, or lots of things, I'm going to give you that. Plus, I'm going to give you many great things. And then we also have 1 John uh, 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have come out, gone out into the world. We saw this with the election. There was a lot, you know, and honestly, and I was, it's, it's from my tribe. It's from the Pentecostals. We see more so than anybody else. But this, this, this uh, prophecy that President Trump would win the election. And so then when it didn't happen, you had a lot of discussions about false prophets because the Bible is very critical about false prophets. I did recently read an article. There's one pastor that's kind of doubled down on this. He said, well, I'm not a false prophet. See, you know, I was right, but the election was stolen, right? And I'm thinking through that and going, um, you know, when I read prophecy and when I look and compare prophecy and when the Messiah was predicted, God said it was going to happen, and it happened. The means for how it happened are really not relevant, right? That's not, we, don't, we don't go, well, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. I can't even think of an example. It, it, it's just that either it's true or it's not. And what I think what frustrates me, and I know, I know that Rob's in here. Rob's over there. Rob, I remember having a conversation with Rob once. He goes, you know, why do you let people like that bother you? You know, there's just some yahoo over there. And I go, the problem is there's lots of people listening to this. You go to their church, and you see this, and I think, you sit in, the, in this church, and why are you, why are you allowing yourself to, to buy into this? Why aren't you using a critical eye? Another one is, um, you know, we're predisposed. You know, I think, uh, you know, like, so in the, you saw this at the time of Jesus. People were predisposed to thinking the Messiah was going to be this great warrior who's going to get rid of the Romans, and he didn't. And so they couldn't believe that Jesus was really the Messiah. They couldn't go back and reevaluate the scripture and say, maybe we got it wrong. Because no, he was supposed to be this, and I'm going to hold to that. Um, and the, the last one I had here is like stubbornness. I call it the anti. Uh, it's that, have you ever heard the phrase, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face? People that are really stubborn sometimes, you, you may want to, the, the best thing in the world may be before them, but they're not going to take it because, you know, they're stubborn, right? Um, and I saw this a little, I've seen this a little bit in the reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine. There's a study that came out that said about 40 to 50% of the white evangelicals were not going to be vaccinated. Now, some people say, well, you know, there's good reasons to not be and all this, and it's really not my 
It's not my, my point here to convince you to get it or not convince you. It's not really the issue. When I see that number, two, a couple of things go, jumped into my mind is, since when was vaccines ever an issue, issue in the evangelical church? Now, granted, there may be some people that have an issue with it. That's fine. But not 40%. And then looking at the politics of the last year, it started making me think that there are people that are like I'm describing here. It's not, they haven't thought it through. They're just, there's this, this, this thing that's getting in the way of them making a good decision. Particularly when I see the theological reasons why people say we shouldn't get vaccinated. Now, I had... Um, I have thanks to Pastor James Emery White, senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte. I get a blog on his blog. I get his blog weekly, and he had a big, long list, and I'm borrowing some of his. He had many more than I had. But I wanted to just focus on some of the theological things that I saw, particularly, and to focus on two of them that I think are actually more problematic because it really brings about poor theology. Because what happens is, is that when we allow these things to get in front of us, we can start to look for theological justifications for what we do. And then we get, we start to proof text and we end up with really bad theology. So one of them is, um, so if you can see there, it contains aborted cell tissue. That's actually technically wrong. The abortion is an issue for the vaccine. I actually, I've been vaccinated by the way, but it did cause me to pause. I did research that issue on, on, on and the effect of, of abortion and how it was used within the vaccines. Don't have time to talk about it. If you want to talk to me about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, the Mark of the Beast, I actually did a um, thing on one of our Monday night meetings about why it is not the Mark of the Beast. So I, I, I'm not going to go through it now. Some people will say things like, well, faith will save me. I don't need a vaccine to save me. Jesus saved me. If God wants me to die, I'll die. It's all predetermined. And then the last two is the one I wanted to kind of focus on. Um, this God does not use man-made things. Recently, Franklin Graham came out with, you know, a lot of leaders have come out to, um, to kind of in, in support of vaccines. Franklin Graham did. And he got a lot of criticism um, from that. And one of the, I, I read an article and they were kind of citing some of the criticism. And somebody actually, somebody said, God does not use man-made things. And being a theologian, I jumped up and go, that is not accurate. Um, now, it could sound very, very spiritual, actually. People can read that and go, well, that's probably true, because God is God. God doesn't need man-made things, which is true. I always think of it, a similar one is, as you've heard probably over the years, God helps them who helps themselves. For years, I thought that was a biblical phrase. It's not. In fact, as I've studied scripture, it's actually the opposite of, the, uh, of what is biblical. God actually helps those who can't help themselves, which is everyone, right? So we have to be careful with things like this. So one of the things I said, well, God, does God use man-made things? I thought, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Last I checked, there was bread there. Bread was man-made. Now somebody will go, oh yeah, but when he prayed over it, it became spiritual bread, which is not true. He used bread. Um, or Noah. Noah... Actually, God used Noah and then used him, told him to go build a ship or an ark so he could save his family and save animals. Now, the kicker is, did God need Noah to build the ark to save him? No, but God chose to. And that's the critical thing is, God doesn't need us to do things to achieve his purpose. He doesn't need man-made things to achieve his purpose. 
but he chooses to. And this is why I'm trying to drilling down on this, which drives me nuts, is that when we read the Bible, yes, we read about salvation. We also read how to live, but we also read to understand God. How does God function so that I can interpret how God is speaking to me? So when I read this, I see God using people all the time. In fact, I may have a conversation when I get to heaven, how inefficient that is to have us do it for him. Why don't he just do it himself, right? But he wants us to be part of, the pro, of, the, uh, of doing things, right? Um, in fact, you can do a whole study on this. Um, the other one is you're showing fear. It's the faith versus fear. What concerns me about this one is faith is an element. And sometimes faith needs to get in front of our fears. But if you're not careful, it could be very dangerous when you start throwing around. Well, you need to just have faith. So let's think of a simple one is, what if I was to walk out there on the street and go, well, I have faith God's going to save me, and I'm not going to look both ways. I'm just going to walk across the street, right? Probably some of you would grab me and go, I think we need to go have a conversation with somebody because I think there's something wrong with you, right? Or why put your... Um, you know, why put your baby, a newborn baby, in a child seat? You know, you have to have faith. You know, it's predetermined. God will save you. You know, we have, you, you can have these dangerous things. And so, actually, I think there's a level where you start throwing that out there that it gets into um, more what I would say blasphemous type of talking, if I can use that term. Um, and I think of Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. And Satan took him to you know, the top of the, is it the temple or whatever it is. He says, throw yourself down because the Bible says that God will save you. His angels will save you. And Jesus responds, you know, in this verse, it is written, do not put the Lord, your God, to test. And so when I think of how faith and fear kind of come together in kind of a proper way is I think of um, the, the gentleman, and I'm always, I'm blanking on their names now, the gentleman that went to Ecuador uh, went down to um, uh, Jim, Jim Elliott, right? Jim Elliott and all the others, right? You know, they went to an area that was dangerous. Of course it was. And I'm sure some people thought, you're crazy. You shouldn't go there. But they felt called to go there. And trust me, they were probably afraid too. I, I'm, I'm guessing there was some fear there. But they went because they felt called and they were trusting God for the outcome. Another example is, Going back to the Black Plague, there were stories of Christians who actually went to help people that um, were, were suffering from the plague while others were running away. Why? Because they felt that that's what they should do to show God's love. Now, I presume they took all precautions as they could, but many died. That's where faith comes in. We don't that faith is empowering faith. You know, we go because God, you know, is with us. But we also, we're also, not, I hate to use this term, but we also are not stupid either. You know, we have to use wisdom with our decisions. Um, all right. So moving on. So that's the deniers. The other one is, the second one I, in this, this, this um, passage is the two by four to the head. To me, this is Paul. And you say, well, what do you mean, two by four to the head? What does that mean? Because Paul was one of the deniers for a long time. I mean, he was vicious. He was running. And what did it take? I like to say is that it took a spiritual two by four to the head to knock him on his butt. Because that's what happened on the road to Emmaus, right? You know, here's this very strong, vicious guy. And how does he respond um, when, when he kind of gets knocked down? Um, <clears throat> oh, wait. Did I get it? 
What? That's not it. So how do you respond? He said, I didn't put it on there. He said, who are you, Lord? And I went like this, this sheepish little feeling. But unfortunately, this is a lot of us. We're kind of in that camp for times where we're not really in it. And God has to use the spiritual two-by-four to get our attention because we're just not getting it. We're not hearing him. The key is, the key of my sermon is to help us to understand and try to recognize when things are in our way so Paul, that God doesn't have to use that two-by-four again. The last person is what I call the refuser. This is, um, this is Felix. He was willing to listen to Paul until things got tough. Um, Felix knew of the way. His wife was a Jew. He likely was open to hearing from Paul, and his wife probably wanted to hear as well, um, I'm, I'm guessing. But then this, we run into that statement where he says, as Paul discussed, discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid, I think that's key, and said, this is enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you, which he never did. This person that likes aspects of the gospel, but when they start to hear things they don't like, they just walk away. In some ways, that's probably the worst because they're just turning their back completely. At least the people in the denier have an interest of doing what they do have, at least I would think, have an interest in knowing God's way. So to conclude, um, the question is, how do we prevent these things from getting in the way of of us seeing the truth, understanding the Bible, seeing God's way. I came up with three of them. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if the, the music team has a, a number, Barrett. If you do, please, uh, you can start moving forward. But number one is consistent time with the Lord. Something that has come become my prayer more recently in my time with God has, Lord, help me to see your, you know, your, the Spirit's leading in my life. Because I recognize from, from that I can, one, get really busy, or I can have other things just filtering in. It becomes back to a place of saying, I'm going to focus on God and say, Lord, help me to kind of push aside all these exterior things. Um, the second is engaging with other believers. And we have that passage from Proverbs that is quoted oftentimes, as iron sharpens iron. We help each other. You know, and sometimes... Um, we need, you know, a spiritual, I call it now, I'm not using a spiritual tube of fire, it's a spiritual shake. I'm not advocating violence, but sometimes we need a friend to say, brother, sister, I think you're allowing your emotions to get the better of you. Let's look at this passage again, right? And so sometimes we need that. And then the third one is, and Bill talked about this one a couple of weeks ago, come to church. We have the passage here, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more you see the day approaching. You know, a lot of us who, who, uh, who preach and, and share and teach, we spend a quite a bit of time preparing. We really, you know, we, we at our heart want to tell you what we think God wants to know and properly interpret scripture. Now, of course, we're not perfect. I'm sure that some of us have things in our life that we need to kind of filter out. But the hope is that by coming to church and engaging is that we can help us to try to avoid and kind of cut through all that stuff in our lives that impact, you know, our theology in an incorrect way, as well as get in the way of us really seeing how God is working. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Thank you, for, Lord, for being with us today, Lord. 
Um, we just pray that something we heard today, Lord, touches our lives and we can take it back home uh, in this week and apply it to our life as we go forward. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.